The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress and other high-profile public figures. After the headlines, I interview Assemblymember Laura Friedman from Southern California to discuss everything that's on her plate and her initiatives for the state and what the Assembly does and what to look forward to in 2021. So stay tuned. Here are some news headlines. The fallout from the investigation into Congressman Matt Gates continues. Luke Ball, who had been serving as communications director for Representative Gates, resigned Friday amid a federal investigation reportedly looking into sexual relationships the Florida Republican representative had. The Justice Department is investigating whether Representative Matt Gates and a close ally of former President Donald Trump broke federal sex trafficking laws focusing on his relationship with women recruited online for sex and whether he had sex with a 17-year-old girl. All 50 states plan to open COVID-19 vaccine eligibility to everyone 16 and older, and several states have already done that, including Alaska, Mississippi, and Georgia. According to President Joe Biden, 90% of all adult Americans will be eligible for vaccination by April 19th. If you are wondering where and how you can get the vaccine, a good place to start is with the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention COVID-19 Vaccine Finder. In Southern California, you can go to the website of the L.A. County Department of Public Health, which is publichealth.lacounty.gov. Again, that is publichealth.lacounty.gov. I announced on March 11th, I direct every state, territory, and tribe to open up their vaccinations to all adults no later than May 1. I issued that order because moving beyond priority groups to enable all adults to get vaccinated is critical to having a July 4th that's closer to normal. I want this to come as quickly as possible. And I want to thank the governors, Democrats and Republicans, who have responded to this directive. In fact, the vast majority of governors have set open access dates even earlier than the deadline on May 1st. But in this race against the rapidly spreading virus, as fast as we are going, we need to go faster. So to make it easier for Americans to get vaccinated as the supply grows and vaccination eligibility expands, I'm directing my COVID team to ensure there is a vaccine site within five miles of 90 percent of all Americans by April the 19th, three weeks from today. Look, we're going to do this by growing from having 17,000 pharmacies giving out vaccination shots to nearly 40,000 pharmacies doing it within the next three weeks. That'll more than double the number of pharmacies where you can go get vaccinated. We aren't stopping there. In the next three weeks, we'll add 12 more federally run mass vaccination sites. Every day at these sites, tens of thousands of people are able to drive up, get a vaccine shot while in their car, and leave in less than an hour. 
And over 60% of the shots given at these sites goes to minority communities because they're in minority communities. We have to reach out. They're the ones most affected by the vaccine, by both the vaccine, but also by the pandemic. We're also going to send more aid to states to expand the opening more community vaccination sites. More vaccines, more sites, more vaccinators, all designed to speed our critical work. We also need to make it easier for those who want shots but cannot access vaccination sites to get vaccinated. This is also where we're focused on the seniors most immediately. While we have made incredible progress in starting to vaccinate nearly three quarters of our seniors and now putting vaccination sites within five miles of 90% of all Americans, that still isn't enough as far as we're concerned. We know that there are a number of seniors and people with disabilities who may be isolated and have lack of access to transportation. And there are community groups that can help. They're trying to help now. So our fourth announcement today is that I'm sending out millions of dollars through the Department of Health and Human Service to provide assistance, including transportation, so more vulnerable seniors and people with disabilities can get their shots because they get help to physically get there to get the shot. Neighbors helping neighbors. What a truly American effort. We cannot let transportation be a barrier to any senior getting a vaccination. And so, where does this put us? We're making progress on vaccinations, but cases are rising, and the virus is spreading in too many places still. That's why today, I'm taking these steps to make our American turnaround story, our vaccination program, move even faster. Thanks to all the work we've done these past 10 weeks, the added steps I'm announcing today with them, I'm pleased to announce that at least 90% of all adults in this country will be eligible to be vaccinated by April the 19th, just three weeks from now because we have vaccines. Los Angeles County officially moved out of the red tier and into the orange tier of the state's blueprint for a safer economy on Wednesday, but the county opted to delay any loosening of business restrictions until today. The pause enabled the county to remain under red tier rules for full three weeks to ensure there was no indication of a rise in COVID-19 infections associated with the eased restrictions implemented in mid-March. Although state guidelines allow a lifting of all capacity restrictions on retail establishments in the orange tier, Los Angeles County will impose a 75% limit for grocery stores and other retail operations while strongly recommending they remain at 50% capacity until April 15th to allow time for more workers to get vaccinated. In accordance with state guidelines, the county will raise the capacity limit from 25% to 50% for movie theaters, churches, museums, zoos, aquariums, and restaurants. Fitness center capacity will be increased from 10% to 25%. Card rooms and family entertainment centers can resume indoor operations at 25% capacity. In California, 19 million doses of the COVID-19 vaccine have been administered. 6.64 million have been given both doses, 
which makes 16.8% of the state population vaccinated so far. People who are fully vaccinated against COVID-19 in the U.S. can resume travel at low risk to themselves, the CDC said on Saturday, in an update to their travel guidance. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. For today's Let's Get Blunt, I want to bring some attention to a problem that I think most of us know that it's there, but we probably only pay attention to it uh, when a high-profile case uh, makes the news. Um, I am talking about human sex trafficking, human uh, sex slavery that happens throughout the world and also here in the U.S. Uh, you know, there's this uh, new alleged... Uh, um, Invest, well, it's not an alleged, it's an investigation into Representative Matt Gates' uh, alleged affair with a 17-year-old. Of course, we went through this huge scandal with uh, Jeffrey Epstein, scandal which incriminated many people, including uh, the British Prince Andrew. So I believe that so many of us are sort of wondering, how does it happen in this day and age? And you know, what are, the, what are the ways that this happens? Of course, there are the obvious ones. But let me just tell you, according to definition from the Department of Homeland Security, human traffickers use force, fraud, or coercion to get the men, women, and children uh, to do their bidding. In 2016, the U.S. State Department estimated that 57,700 people were trafficked into the country every year. 70% of these were females trafficked for sexual ex exploitation. It is estimated that between 15,000 to 50,000 women and children are forced into sexual slavery in the U.S. every year, and the total number varies widely, and it is, it's difficult to research it. Uh, one study from the Department of Health and Human Services estimated that the number to be between 240,000 and 325,000, uh, while a report from the University of Pennsylvania put the number at 100,000 and 300,000. Now, Deliver Fund, um, let me just tell you about Deliver Fund. Deliver Fund's International Human Trafficking Analysis Center uh, is the premier nonprofit organization for the collection, integration, analysis, dissemination of human trafficking intelligence. And this is what they had to say about uh, sex trafficking and more specifically sex trafficking venues. Because I think some, sometimes we wonder, where is this all happening? Of course, we know it's online, but where else is it happening? Sex trafficking has grown exponentially since the dominance of the internet and online porn industry. Victims are either used for pornographic pictures or videos, or they're prostituted out through online platforms such as Facebook and Mocha Space. Some dedicated websites are created through subscription services, such as the San Diego Adult Service Provider, which charged members $100 per month to browse its online catalog and purchase sex. The site was taken down by the police in 2016. Hotels and motels are a major venue for sex trafficking, often through PIM-controlled victims that are affiliated with the hotel's owner or employees. Uh, massage parlors are another uh, common place for sex trafficking. 
Truck stops are a third place where pimp-controlled women and girls are found. In all of these instances, uh, these women may be uh, indebted to the pimp or the organization and have no funds, uh, contacts, or language skills to use to flee. Sporting events are also a common prostitution venue. According to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, 10,000 prostitutes were brought to Miami for the 2010 Super Bowl. Uh, similar reports have, uh, have been made about the 2014 FIFA World Cup, the gathering of large groups of people, as well as tourists' willingness to spend money is what makes these large events so lucrative for sex traffickers. So why is this happening in 2021, and why are we just waiting for uh, the news to break about a high-profile case to do something? This is a major issue. Um, it involves, it can happen to anyone. These people can be our family members and friends and neighbors and loved ones. Um, so I just wanted to do, just to take advantage of Let's Get Blunt and bring attention to this, um, just at least so we can keep it in our, in our minds and have more awareness about it, um, and to help people who are doing the, the good work, the actual work to um, stop this and uh, take you know, control over this major crime that's happening, it's affecting uh, children and, and a majority of them uh women so there you have it let's get blunt let's get blunt the blunt post with vic laura friedman was elected to the california state assembly in november 2016 to represent the 43rd assembly district her legislative work is focused in three primary areas addressing the housing affordability and homelessness crisis combating climate change and protecting vulnerable communities Long recognized as a steadfast advocate for the environment, sustainable communities, and active transportation, in 2020, she was appointed to serve as the chair for the Assembly Committee on Transportation. Assemblymember Friedman's appointment as chair marks a shift toward forward-thinking policies, such as investing in mass transit, bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure, zero emission vehicles, road safety, and sustainability. Good morning, Assemblymember Friedman. Thank you for being on the show this morning. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here with you. Uh, likewise. Um, it's good to sort of focus on uh, what's happening more locally or regionally in Southern California and, uh, and find out about everything that's happening. Uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are, I'm not sure, but I assume... Uh, there are people who don't really know exactly what members of the California Assembly do. So I want to take this opportunity to really uh, talk about your initiatives, your work, uh, what's in the pipeline for you, your focus, uh, and such. So uh, before I go into any specifics, I just want to ask you in this sort of, um, I don't want to say post-COVID, because we're definitely not post, but like in this transitional phase of uh, vaccinations are really accelerating, but yet we're still not out of the woods. How do you, what's your perspective on where we are as a nation, but also as uh, in Southern California? Well, thanks for the question. Uh, it's been a really difficult year, year and a half for so many people. 
And for many of us, the preceding several years were very difficult, too, with the Trump administration. Um, and I feel for the first time in a while, you know, somewhat hopeful having a new federal administration led by Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Uh, and in addition, now the, the very extensive vaccine rollout um, showing real dividends with hospitalization rates falling and COVID infection rates falling across the Southland. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have a lot of work to do. Certainly, we still have to do social distancing and wear masks and practice good um, hygiene because a lot of people still aren't vaccinated and some people won't be vaccinated. And we're not completely sure how this virus is going to behave with the new variants coming along. So we're not out of the woods yet. We certainly have a lot of people suffering from having lost jobs or lost businesses during the pandemic and still really struggling. Uh, the return to school for a lot of people with young kids, and I have a seven-year-old who's in second grade, so I've been going through this with my family, is still very much a work in progress. And we have a lot of potential learning loss to deal with 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 students for the from the past year so there's a lot of challenges ahead of us but i i think there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful as we start to hopefully move into a recovery phase yeah we're definitely on the right track that's the that's the message that's very hopeful with the with this new administration and we're definitely doing better with vaccinations than we thought we would be you, yep. ha you have a new role. You are the chair of the Assembly uh, Transportation. And your perspective as chair is that, uh, that you believe that equity, environment, and, and housing policies uh, needed to be tr uh, treated together uh, along transportation uh, because they are all kind of linked. Uh, would you elaborate on that? Sure. Thank you. Um so I've spent the last year and a half chairing the Natural Resources Committee in the Assembly, and in that role, I was able to work on issues like our recycling cross a crisis and clean air policies and clean energy and, and a whole host of other issues. And a lot of the work that I focus on in Sacramento is environmental sustainability. You know, as the mom of a seven-year-old and as a, a human being that tries to pay attention to what's happening around us, to me, the biggest crisis and the, the real existential crisis that we face as a planet is climate change and global warming and what we are doing to our environment with with the loss of biodiversity, mass extinctions, with uh, our plastic crisis, uh, with the, the pressures on the ocean and certainly with climate change. So I spend a lot of my, my focus on those issues. And in natural resources, we've been able to, in California, uh, move forward with a lot of very progressive sustainability policies. And California is a leader in a lot of areas with clean energy, our transition off of coal and now off of natural gas and a lot of other things. But the one area where we have continued to really go in the wrong direction has been transportation. We, about 40% of our greenhouse gas emissions, which of course leads to climate change, comes from our transportation sector, from single from single occupancy passenger vehicles, you know, from cars, all the way up to the way that we move our goods across the state in diesel-powered trucks. So 
I decided to move over to chairing transportation to, to work on those issues, to try to, first of all, help with the governor's vision of transitioning us to zero emission vehicles, but also because I, I believe that cars are, that the EVs, the zero emission vehicles and electric vehicles are only one part of the, the puzzle. The other part is that we have got to invest in mass transit in active transportation so that people can reclaim our streets and our sidewalks uh, and move around our communities safely, interacting with each other, um, and recognizing that we have siloed a lot of big issues like transportation away from other very linked issues. Sustainability is one, and certainly things like housing uh, have a huge nexus with transportation policy. Here in Los Angeles, whenever anyone wants to build any kind of density, when anyone wants to build a new apartment building, pretty much anywhere, a lot of people who live in the surrounding areas object. And usually they'll object based on impacts to traffic and parking. So it really becomes a, an impediment to building housing when you still expect everybody as you add population to be driving. And traffic congestion is a huge quality of life issue and public health issue, and that's not solved by electric vehicles. So there's a nexus between all of these issues, between housing policy, between land use policy and transportation. We use more square footage in Los Angeles County to park cars and keep cars and move cars than we do to house human beings. Wow. Let that sink in. We use more land for cars than we do for people. The biggest mistake that Los Angeles ever made was removing its red car and its its light rail system and, and losing a lot of those right-of-ways. Um, we need to reinvest in uh, safe and convenient, high-quality public transportation, mass transit, and uh, active transportation like sidewalks and, and bike lanes um, to, to give people mobility options. And there is an equity component because the – more housing is expensive. The more we don't build housing near job centers, the more people who can't afford the higher and higher rents are forced to move further and further away. People um, then experience very long commutes, which have huge impacts on people's quality of life. A lot of times people that are economically disadvantaged um, um, use vehicles that have worse gas mileage because they're older. They pay more in gas prices. They pay more in gas taxes. Uh, it's a whole sort of vicious cycle. And we haven't given those very same people the opportunity, number one, to live closer to where they work, which we need to do, but secondly, to have high-quality transportation options so, um, like light rail to get yeah. them where they are working. So let me ask you about this. I wasn't actually planning to ask you about this, but it mm -hmm. reminds me of last time I, I heard a comprehensive discussion or speech about public transportation in Southern California. It was from, it was from Supervisor Sheila Kuehl, mm -hmm. and and that was a few years ago. So where are we with that? If I mean, you don't need to know any of this, but if you do, if you can share anything in terms of uh, the extensions to some of the uh, some of the lines, some of the purple line or whatnot, and what is happening, and why is it, why is it taking so long? Right. Well, I'm probably not the the right person to talk about specific projects. Okay. You know, really having someone on from 
from Metro and Metrolink would probably give you a little, you know, give you a better insight. But I will say that you know anyone can just look around to see what's happened with the Expo line, with the um, Gold Line extension, uh, with the planning now for a connector possibly between the Red Line and the Gold Line. That LA is moving very rapidly um, to trying to make up for lost time and expand its public transportation system. Um, we're now seeing discussions about bus rapid transit, which is an important piece of, of that puzzle as well. Um, but it's, it does take a long time, especially with fixed rail. It, it, and, and even things like rapid bus and putting in bus lanes become these huge flashpoints in certain communities where people just don't want buses or they don't want buses to take away what they think of as car capacity. So it, yeah. it's something that needs to happen faster and we need to do maybe a better job of communicating to people why they should be in favor of this, why they shouldn't be fighting against bus infrastructure or bike lanes or after transportation that that the, that taking cars off the road improves everybody's quality of life. It's what we need to do. And we need to allow for more uses near where people live uh, so that people don't always have to feel that they have to drive everywhere. You know, we, yeah. we have so much sprawl in Los Angeles County that mass transit is really difficult to make pencil out, let's say. Right. Um, but, but densifying in the right places and adding more commercial uses so that people can walk to a corner bodega to get a gallon of milk instead of having to drive a mile or two miles. Yeah. Um, making people feel safer about riding a bike somewhere by doing infrastructure that keeps them safe uh, is really important. And and I've done you know legislation, which I can talk about, which we've, I've introduced this year to do all those things, to look at giving cities more tools to have safer streets, to so, re- reduce speeding, to to make communities plan more for reducing vehicle miles traveled to get people out of cars. I mean, that is an, you need to be as a municipality yeah. when you plan intentional. You have to say, am I planning my city and allowing my city to grow in a way that I give people more chances to not have to drive all the time? And, and that is directly linked to our ability to fight climate change. And we've got to connect all of these pieces together so that people understand why it's all important. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with California Assemblymember Laura Friedman. And there are always there are different sides. Uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, when someone uh, complains about... Uh, you know, a challenge in a city, I always tell them that I've sat through a lot of, uh, not assembly meetings, but city council meetings. And there are two sides, or at least two sides, to a, an issue that's discussed. For example, a group will come and say, I live on the street, people drive very fast, there are kids that are at risk of being hit by a car, why aren't we putting bumps, more bumps, or maybe stop signs? So uh, council members will try to, you know, uh, rectify that. But then the other group will come and say, why is it taking me a half hour to go through one mile? Why are there so many (laughs) bumps and so many stop signs and so many red lights? So I I feel legislatures who are sort of caught in between uh, so many different um, groups and and ways of thinking, and everyone has their own priority in a way. So it's a it's kind of a balancing act, which brings me to the next question is, you're a key member of the, you know, of the coalition of legislators that's addressing plastic pollution, you know, the crisis that we're in, and, uh, you know, you're working on collection of bills tackling uh, the issue from all sides. So 
can you elaborate on what the all sides are? I mean, a couple of them are obvious. Yeah, so I I was a principal co-author of a bill last year that was trying to create a circular economy when it came to, to plastics so that it would have required manufacturers to use more recycled content to be a lot more sustainable, to reduce the use of plastic in their packaging and in their products. And we weren't able to get that bill across the finish line. And we're, you know, we are attempting again, and there's a small group of legislators that have introduced a package of bills all around pollution and plastic pollution. Uh, I have a bill in that that group, uh, which is AB 1371, that phases out the use of single-use plastics and packaging from e-commerce sites uh, within the next several years. So those are your large online shippers. Any any right. commerce site that ships, it would say stop using completely by a certain date certain the plastic that's used in your packaging because it's not recyclable and it is – um, single use, and it really needs to be replaced with materials that are more sustainable or recyclable. You know, we have this this sort of lie that has been told to us over the years by the plastics industry that so much of their product is recyclable. Now, being recyclable under optimal conditions in a laboratory uh, is one thing, but having a product that is easily separated from other components uh, that is um, easy for the automated recycling systems that we have to, to pull out and that has a market an aftermarket is a whole other story. A plastic film is, I don't know of any uh, municipality or recycle recycle center in all of California, maybe even the world that, that is recycling plastic film. You know, that's anything you can put your finger through right. uh, plastic wrap, bubble wrap, any of that polystyrene has very little um, recyclable capability. Um, there's a, a teensy bit of it gets recycled, but not re- not at any scale. And these are materials, of course, that don't break down in the environment, or if they do, they cause even worse harm. They have horrible effects on, on marine life. Uh, when they're put in landfill, they can break down and sort of leach into groundwater and, and in the form of microplastics and mic- microfibers. Um, they're, and they're fossil fuel-derived materials. Um, and we really need to get serious about phasing out as much plastic as we can because there is no aftermarket. Once it's created, uh, it very rarely gets recycled into something else, certainly not over and over again. Even if it's recycled once, let's say, it, usually that's the, the last time it's going to get recycled, and I think which this... means we have to work on the source. We have to, to, right. to demand that if we're going to have plastic products at all, that we don't wrap them again in plastic. Uh, as consumers, we should be doing our best to purchase uh, products that come in more sustainable packaging like aluminum and glass. Uh, but we need to, as lawmakers, also insist on the manufacturers taking responsibility. Because I, let me tell you, this is the most important thing, that, that if I can get one message out about plastic, which is this, that manufacturers and, and shippers send this into our communities. Oftentimes, if you're buying something, let's say on Amazon, you don't know that it's going to come wrapped in all this plastic. But the one who ends up paying is not the manufacturer and it's not the shipper. It's you. When you live in a city, you pay you know, either through your landlord or directly a fee for trash disposal. And your municipality is now paying more and more and more money to deal with this non-recyclable material or to pay to recycle some of it. And they pay for that because of right. diversion requirements. So you end up being having to pay for that in your water and power bill. You 
literally are paying for that. And even if you don't use any plastic, you don't buy anything online, your neighbor does, and you're paying for that as well. So the idea that these sellers will say that this is a cheap product and sell it to you, but then don't tell you the costs that you are going to have to pay and your city is going to have to pay and your state to deal with their irresponsible behavior is something that we should not allow. That's a very so, good point. That's a very So good that point. is what I am working on. That is what other legislators are working on. But I'll tell you, it is tough. Industry yeah. speaks with a big voice in Sacramento and in Washington. So and it's I, up to, to people to push back and, and I demand their legislators do better. Uh, pardon yes. me, but I and I think that this you know last year or so because of COVID that has become a bigger problem because we've started to order online. In fact, I think I was reading a uh, I read a part of an article the other day about how some companies are running out of uh, packaging materials um, because there's so much shipping happening. So you know, it's like, where is that going? Where are the landfills? And how is that destroying the environment? Um, so that, that it is, and sense. it's, it's, it's rapidly filling up our landfills and people want to close landfills, but the stuff has to go somewhere. You know, it used to be, we would ship a lot of our plastic overseas and we were being told it was being recycled, but you know, impoverished people were literally picking through that garbage, pulling out some material. It was so contaminated with material that's not truly recyclable. And what those third world countries were doing was they were burning them, was causing horrible you know, health impacts for their residents or dumping it in the ocean. So which we have really got to, which affects all of us. And we've got to do a much better job of, of demanding better from our shippers, from our retailers, you know, from our communities. And that's, uh, uh, you know, something that I've been working on with some of my colleagues. Yeah. Thank you for that. The next topic, which is uh, AB43, I'm not too familiar with. Actually, I'm not familiar with. I want to ask you about it adopts some of the recommendations from the state uh, Vision Zero Task Force, uh, which looks to reform speeding laws in California, uh, specifically the 85th uh, percentile rule. Will you explain right. that? Sure. So a few years ago, I tried to um, uh, introduce a bill about this, the 85th percentile, which I'll explain in a second. And the then chair of transportation, uh, you know, this is a, 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 law, a, a law about the way that speed limits are set in California that's been pretty sacrosanct and no one has allowed anyone to really to change it over the years. So I was asked instead to change my bill into having a task force to examine it. So what we did was we put together a task force of stakeholders from up and down the state of California to look at traffic fatalities, uh, generally fatalities between cars or vehicles and cyclists or pedestrians. And just aside from that, in the last year with COVID, we've had people driving a lot less. Obviously, that people aren't going to work. There's been quarantine, and we've seen the amount of traffic on the roads really plummet. At the same time, our fa traffic fatalities have skyrocketed because hmm. what we've realized is that one of the only things that's kept people from driving like complete maniacs on our streets was other traffic in front of them. You uh -huh. take that traffic away, and all of a sudden, you've got people in very powerful, fast cars going very, very fast. Mm -hmm. And the result of that has been this scourge of deadly collisions with pedestrians and people who are out and trying to enjoy some fresh air during quarantine by, by riding their bicycle. So there's even more reason to look at how we reduce that. Um, you know, uh, young children have a greater chance of dying in a traffic collision than any other uh, uh, type of mortality. 
Wow. Let that sink in. We have tens of thousands of traffic fatalities in California, every, you know, across the nation every single year. And we yet we don't look at this as a public health crisis. You know, imagine if 35,000 people died of a single disease every year or more, and yet we allow much more than that to happen uh, every single year in California and in the rest of the nation. So this is something that, that we put together this task force of, of representatives from planning agencies, from transportation agencies, from the highway patrol, from AAA, um, our walk-bike advocacy groups, just different stakeholders, and they spent a year trying to talk about ways that cities could have more tools to get to that zero traffic fatalities. So the 85th percentile is this law that says that in order to give a speeding ticket, every 10 years, a municipality has to look at the average speed that drivers are driving on a road, and then they can't, they have to set that speed at no less than what 85% of the people are driving. So the problem is that if you have a lot of people speeding on a certain road and you want to give tickets, and you have to go out and do the speed survey. And what happens a lot of times is that municipalities are then forced to raise the speed limit on these streets mm. in order to stay within the 85th percentile of the way people are driving. And that's regardless of, of safety. So what our bill AB 43 would say is that the cities would get some relief from that if they can show that the road is either dangerous in the way that it's designed, too dangerous to deal with that higher speed, or there's been a number of accidents, or you have a vulnerable population like a school or a lot of children or senior citizens, or you're re-engineering the road in order to reduce speeds or do things like introduce a bike lane. So that's the bill in a nutshell. It's, 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 it's adding a lot of other recommendations as well because speed limits are not, you know, they, they send a signal to drivers, but they're really only one piece of what you need to do to make roads safer, which is primarily engineering, you know, to engineer the roads to where the cars just aren't tempted or just can't drive as fast. And the other thing that we are changing in this bill is telling how to, is redesigning the way the traffic engineering manuals were written so that instead of centering the free flow of automobiles and moving cars as quickly and efficiently as you can through our communities, which is what these manuals have tried to do forever, is instead to center safety and health, public health, because really what we should be concerned about is the ability for people to not get run over. And, and killed and hurt when they try to, you know, use the road. And the roads are for everyone. They're not just for cars. They're for pedestrians. They're for cyclists. And we need to, to center and focus on, on that safety component, given how bad our traffic safety has become. So that's yeah. what AB 43 is trying to do. <laughs> Thank you for that. If anyone ever had any questions as to what uh, members of the Assembly are busy doing, you've, you've definitely done it justice <laughs> explaining all of that i do have two more questions i don't, I don't know if sure. you have time for me to um, I'm good. address let's, them i'm talking to you my next one seems like so redundant to me it's so redundant i can't believe that it's like a topic of dis discussion which is uh, ab 679 it's the criminal justice which would make um, evidence taken from testimony of an incentivized person in custody or someone who's who's an informant who's been essentially given some sort of an incentive or bribe or whatnot, that their testimony would be inadmissible in court. I mean, yes. I would think that that would already be. 
Well, it's not. So, yes, we've introduced a bill, AB 679, that would do away with the California practice of using what, you know, what some people would call a jailhouse snitch, a paid informant. And the reason is because when you look at people that have been wrongfully convicted, there are statistics from the Innocence Project and other groups that, that show very clearly that a very high percentage of wrongful convictions are the result of a paid informant who has not the truth as a motivating factor for coming forward, but the fact that they are given either a reduced sentence or some other type of privilege for bringing information forward. And we really need to make sure that we do everything that we can to ensure real justice. And justice means not incentivizing people to lie about somebody else's culpability. And and the unfortunate evidence is clear that in far too many cases, this has contributed to people doing time for crimes that they did not commit. So this will be a difficult bill, and I'm sure that we will have opposition from from various law enforcement entities, but I am really committed to, to working on this with, with the Innocence Projects and other groups that have brought this to us. And uh, so, yes, I'm working on that. And, you know, just to, to just to clarify this for, for your listeners and for you, I think of my work in three buckets. One bucket is the environmental work, which is very important to me. The other bucket is what I consider to be vulnerable populations. So we have done work with foster for foster youth. We have done this criminal justice reform work, certainly. We are doing um, other bills right now, a bill about hospital charity care and making sure that people get the, the hospital charity care that they're entitled to. We have another bill to help support tenants who who end up in, in substandard illegal rental units uh, by slumlord landlords. So that's another area that we work on. And the last area is this sort of regional um, issues like housing and transportation. So uh, we really try to seek out um, legislation that is meaningful and impactful in the area and to, to help people uplift people and communities that, that need to be uplifted. And yeah. the criminal justice reform is really an important part that, of that, that work. That's a lot of important issues and a lot of them to tackle. So uh, that's great. We totally appreciate you and what you're doing. I would think that AB 679 would be supported by the new LA District Attorney, George Gascon, because I feel like that's part of what he's trying to do. Yeah, we have reached out to his office to, to ask him if he would be um, you know, willing to come on as a supporter of the legislation. And you're right. he He's come into office with a mandate to try to fix our criminal justice system. And uh, I'm really hopeful. I'm really excited to see what he's going to accomplish over the next few years. Um, yeah. So uh, and we have a website. If any of your listeners are interested in um, learning anything about our bills, we do talk about them on, on my website. Please mention assembly. it. Please mention it. Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that. And I don't have the, <laughs> uh, I don't have the address on the top of my – you know what? Ask me another question. And it's I'm okay. They, they, they it. can yeah. Google Assemblymember Laura Friedman, uh, California Assemblymember Laura Friedman, and that will take you there. If, if you want to find it, you'll find it. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with California Assemblymember Laura Friedman. My last question is about AB 1020, which I think it's my last question. And, and God, I think so many people are affected by this. 
Uh, and essentially, it's consumer protection against uh, hospital bills. Um, it's something that really pr uh, protects people about uh, or for Hospital Fair Pricing Act. So I'm going to let you elaborate on that because I think uh, you know there's so many people who receive these like outrageous bills after being in hospital for like two or three days. Absolutely. So current California law has an act called the Hospital Fair Pricing Act that requires that patients be given information about how to receive charity care if they can't pay their bills and or, you know, and Medi-Cal and, and Medicare. And, you know, there's a lot of programs for which people who can't pay medical bills are eligible. Unfortunately, not all hospitals are doing that. And instead, what some of these hospitals are doing is selling patient debt and sending that information out to collection agencies who then can go after these people at the very time when they're vulnerable, when they've been in the hospital, they might be previously ill. Maybe they don't know that they have other options. They all of a sudden have credit agencies putting a lien on their property, go, trying to garnish their wages, all kinds of awful things that are not supposed to happen. So this bill puts teeth in that act and would, would actually um, set up a way to enforce against hospitals that do that and that are not fulfilling their obligations under the law. It would also raise the income level for financial assistance so that more people could receive aid in California. Nobody should be struggling with hospital bills right now, especially in this era. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a supporter of a single-payer policy of making sure that we have universal health care that is high quality and that people don't have to struggle or wonder how they're going to have insurance after their next job or how they're going to pay for insurance for their family. It, it, it's awful enough that we put people in that situation that we have hospitals that aren't even availing people of aid that's mm -hmm. guaranteed them by law is unconscionable. Yeah. And so we want to be able to have the public agencies go after the hospitals that are engaging in these kinds of really awful practices. Well, so that bill is AB 1020. Well, I know you do a lot more than what we discussed, but what we do, what we did discuss is just fantastic. It's so important. Uh, you know, I couldn't even pick one to say this is the most important. So I hope our listeners would find out more by going to your website. By uh, You can just Google Assemblymember Laura Friedman and uh, this comprehensive uh, information about uh, her initiatives and her work and uh, what's in the pipeline and such. Um, is there anything, uh, Assemblymember, that I didn't uh, ask or anything you'd like to add or even a, a call to action? Well, I'm working on, uh, you know, a lot of legislation. I would invite anyone who's interested in some of the policy areas that I focus on, again, to, to visit my website or um, look at my social media pages. I have an assembly Facebook page and Twitter page, and we talk about legislation on there. I'd love to engage in dialogue with, with the public. And it's an honor to be able to serve. It really is. I, I get excited talking about policy. I I enjoy going to work every day to do it, and it really is the uh, greatest honor of my life to be able to serve my community the way that I do. I know that sounds super corny, but it's true. You can tell I just love being able to work on these issues. <laughs> and I had a lot of fun talking to you and being able to share well. um, our work with, with your listeners. So thank you. Thank you, Assemblymember Friedman. I totally appreciate your time and all the wisdom and info that you gave us. Please come back anytime. Well, I will. Thank you. That was Assemblymember Laura Friedman from right here in Southern California. 
much appreciate your time, uh, Assembly Member, for being on the show and letting us know about all your initiatives and all the great work that you're doing. Thank you so much. The Blunt Post with Vic. I have three recent tweets uh, by three different people to read you today. The first one is from Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi about the American Rescue Plan. She said, the March jobs report is resounding evidence that under House Democrats and the president, help is here. Over 100 million vaccine doses and 100 million checks have been delivered and nearly 1 trillion are being put in workers' pockets by the life-saving American Rescue Plan. The next tweet is from President Biden. He wrote, this is, by the way, about uh, taxes uh, and corporations and how corporations are uh, paying less and less taxes. He said, let me be clear, we're going to ensure corporations finally pay their fair share. The last um, quote is from uh, one of my favorite philosophers, writers, brains, brilliant human beings, and I'll let you just judge it as it will. (laughs) It's from uh, uh, the Honorable Noam Chomsky. He wrote, the key element of social control is the strategy of distraction that is to divert public attention from important issues and changes decided by political and economic elites through the technique of flood or flooding, continuous distractions and insignificant information. That was from the brilliant, brilliant Noam Chomsky. Before we go, I want to thank my extremely talented producer, Ricky Herrera. And uh, of course, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Blunt Post with Vic. Please tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. for another episode. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jaramie. Uh, Both Instagram and Twitter, my handle is at Vic Jaramie. That's V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. The Blunt Post with Vic.